So the Byzantine era, you've probably heard this word many times, is um, named after Byzantium, which was the capital of the Roman Empire for a period of time. And therefore, the Byzantine area is the era is the era within which the the Romans, uh, based out of Byzantium, were ruling the Middle East and other parts of the world. So we're going to start with um, looking at the dates from 70 to 633 A.D. And then we'll subdivide that up into several several sections. So what happened in the year 70, just by way of review? Okay, Jerusalem is destroyed, and in particular the temple is destroyed. So that sort of brings to an end Jewish worship in Jerusalem. And for most of the time period we're going to look at, not all, but most of the time period we're going to look at, Jews really aren't allowed in Jerusalem. They are under different regimes and they're kicked out again. So there were Jews living in the land of what we call Israel from uh, the time of the conquest up to the present. There was never... There was never a period of time where there were no Jews living in what we call Israel today. But there were periods of time when there were literally no Jews in Jerusalem because they weren't allowed to be there. And we'll under, we'll, you'll, you'll sort of understand from a political perspective why that is the case as we move through the material. So this is the, the, the area of the Byzantine era. So remember last week we talked about the first Roman War? What, what was that basically all about? This is post-resurrection, after Christ. What was the first Roman war? Anybody remember? Think of the great historian. Okay, so the, the, the Jews rebel against Rome, notably in Galilee. Men like Josephus are basically officers in the army. They ultimately win some skirmishes, but they're defeated again. And... Then there's about a 20-year period of peace at the latter end of the first century. Then moving into the second century, the emperor Hadrian. Have you heard of Hadrian's Wall? Where's that? Yeah, up in Britain. So this is the Roman emperor. He rules from 117 to 138. So this is the first kind of part of the second century. And he now comes down into Jerusalem and he rebuilds Jerusalem as Colonia Aelia Capitolina. So I'll just spell that out. Colonia. And I, I might be mispronouncing it, I'm not really sure. but So this is what he names Jerusalem. And really he Romanizes the city brings Hellenism into Jerusalem in terms of architecture and cult worship and worship of different gods. And you remember under the Maccabees, this is one of the reasons why they revolted against the, the Greeks. Well, Rome, even though it's a different nation, is highly Hellenized. So Rome, again, brings a lot of Hellenization or Greekification, we'll call it, into Jerusalem. So now, after couple decades of peace, this starts to infuriate the religious Jews again. I mean, this is their capital city. This is their holy city. 
and Hadrian is turning it over to the pagans. So uh, the rabbi, the ruling rabbi at the time, now this is during the era where we see the rise of rabbinical schools. Up to this point, we haven't talked a lot about rabbis. Rabbis begin to take on greater authority among the Jews. Why? For what historical reason? Yep, Kathy. Okay, there's there's no priesthood, but there's always a high priest. But what did we discuss a week or two back with regard to places of worship? Temple, temple no, a temple. There's always only one temple, but there are now multiple synagogues. So synagogues are now scattered over the countryside because they don't always have access to the temple of Jerusalem. And the synagogues generally are run by rabbis or rabbinical teachers of some sort because there's only one high priest. And depending on the era, he may be a puppet of Rome. He may be more political than religious. So now you'll start to hear the language of rabbis. So there's a rabbi by the name of Rabbi Akaba, A-K-I-B-A, and he identifies a man by the name of Simon ben Kosaba. Now, ben means son of, so Simon's father was Kosaba. And this rabbi declares Simon ben Kosaba to be the Messiah. Remember last week we talked about various messianic figures? So this is after Christ. The Jews are still looking for a Messiah. And he is declared to be the Messiah. And he is takes on the messianic name Bar Kokhba, K-O-C-H-B-A. So his messianic title is Bar Kokhba. And Rabbi Akaba encourages Bar Kokhba to raise arms against the Romans. He does, and they eventually, they actually succeed in retaking Jerusalem for a period of time. Now, Hadrian obviously is not all that excited about this, so he picks his top general. Now his top general was a man by the name of General Severus, and he's way up in England. He brings him all the way down from Britain, all the way down from Britain into Palestine, and for three years Severus wages war against the rebels, and he attacks Simon, and the Romans eventually systematically move their way forward, and they win. And now, instead of saying, okay, basically you lost, so we're ruling you again, like it happened over and over and over again, they say, okay, we're going we're gonna to teach you a lesson, essentially, and um, you actually have to leave the country. So the, a great majority of the Jews have to leave Judea, the, pro, the Roman prov, province of Judea. And even the Jewish Christians have to replace their bishop with a Gentile Christian bishop instead of a Jewish Christian bishop. A bishop is basically like in the early church, a uh, pastor's pastor. He would be the pastor of, a, of, of an area, usually a significant area, like there would be one in Jerusalem, one in Rome, so forth. Um, they were sort of like senior, senior pastors. And the, the Christian population in Israel was predominantly Jewish. But because they're Jewish, and the, the Romans are all the Jews have offended us, they even forced the Christians to pick a, to bring in a Gentile bishop to be the bishop of of uh, Jerusalem. So that's that's very interesting. Now, 
by 135, then they're defeated. So their defeat, their their revolt, the Jewish revolt against the Romans falls flat on its face. And a huge, now this hasn't really happened too much before. They've been taken into exile in Assyria. They've been taken into exile in Babylon. But this time, Hadrian decides to sell as many Jews as he possibly can into slavery. And in fact, historians tell us there were so many Jews sold into slavery that it actually depressed the economy of Rome because they took them down to the port cities, put them on ships, and shipped them out as slaves around the Roman Empire. And there was an excess, there was an abundance of slaves, and so the price of slaves dropped and it depressed the Roman economy. That's how many of the Jews were sold into slavery. The Romans then renamed Judea Syria-Palestina. So Syria is the country that we know to the north. You know, Damascus, that's Syria. But at different points, Syria sometimes is its own province. Palestine was sometimes its own province or previously had been named Judea. Now it's sort of blended together and it's named Syria-Palestina. So this, folks, is where we get the word Palestine from. It's a a Roman word. The Muslims would later put it in a... uh, This is more like the the Arabic... I mean, it's English, but it's more the the Arabic form of that word. So from from this point, 135-ish... Till now, we have ver- derivations of this. We have Syria, we have Palestine, and this is from like the uh, the the word Philistine, which you would be familiar with in the Old Testament. So even the people that would consider themselves Palestinian today, I mean, they weren't this that people group wasn't even in Syria or Palestine at the time, but they've adopted this name, and this name has been passed down. Uh, over and over again. So keep in mind, we're not talking about we're not talking about a country. We're talking about a province. Okay, it remains a province or a jurisdiction from the first century up till the twentieth century. It's never its own country again. It's always a province or some sort of a district or jurisdiction. Its borders are moving all over the place. Sometimes it's merged with Syria. Sometimes it's not. But for essentially 2,000 years, the country that we know as Israel is a province of various empires that would come. So this is life in the 2nd century AD. Now, the 2nd the century and the 3rd century is the period of time within which historians would say that the ancient world began to decline and the seedbed was laid for the modern world to rise up. And there's several reasons for this. Uh, People start to heavily urbanize key areas. So Palestina becomes a cosmopolitan area. Lots of big cities rise up and people start to flow in. Again, it's a Roman province. What is a Roman ethnically? What's an ethnic Roman? You all should know this. Everybody. 
anybody who, who's part of the Roman Empire is a Roman. It started in what we would call Italy. But a Roman, you could be a British Roman, you could be a French Roman. Paul was a Jewish Roman, right? So it's, it's a cosmopolitan nation. It's composed of many different ethnicities. And as a province, now under Rome, again, it all these people start to migrate in, and there's a, there, there's a real cosmopolitan, multilinguistic, multi-ethnic flair. So it's heavily urbanized. Now, what about the Jews during this period of time? Well, most of them, again, they're not allowed in Jerusalem, so they set up camp in Galilee. And this is in the north, and the Sanhedrin is reinstated in a, a lesser form. Now, the dominant uh, Jewish leader during this period of time in the Sanhedrin was a man by the name of Judah I. And he becomes a dominant leader. The um, They're under his... I'm not going to say reign because he wasn't a king, but under his influence and leadership, we have the rise of rabbinical schools. So a rabbinical school is a, a Jewish school that is interested in studying the Mishnah, the Torah, the scriptures, um, you know, the, the holy books. So in the north of Galilee now, there's all these rabbinical schools that are popping up. And the second and third century is a period of time where there's a, there's a lot of study going on among the Jews. They're trying to, they're not, adding books to their canon of scripture, but they're really studying it out, and there's, a, there's an emphasis on scholasticism. Jews and Christians almost completely sever ties with one another during the 2nd and 3rd century. So there's really no proselytization going on, no evangelism, no intermarriage, no you know, hanging out at Tim Hortons. They, they separate themselves out. They're, they're living in the same Roman province, but they are separated. And... One of the critical reasons for this is when Bar Kokhba tried to revolt against the Romans, his Jewish countrymen, who were Christians, didn't support him. Why? Pretty obvious. He was also claiming to be the Messiah. So if he wasn't claiming to be the Messiah, there's probably a a high likelihood that some of the Jewish Christians and non-Jewish Christian, or sorry, some of the Jewish Christians and some of the Jewish Jews, I guess you would call them, perhaps would have come together militarily and worked against Rome. But because he was fighting both politically and religiously, he was obviously claiming the turf for his people, but he was also declaring himself to be the Messiah. The Jewish Christians had their Messiah, Jesus Christ. So they said, no, we don't want to be part of this. This disturbed uh, the Jewish Jews, and it basically caused them to sever from one another in a greater way than perhaps we'd seen in the first and second century. So the 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 Roman the the, the world as a whole, uh, the civilized world, is is becoming urbanized and uh, influenced by by Rome, and this sort of meanders along into what we call the fourth century, which is the early. Uh, which is the 300s. So in the in the 300s, we have a new emperor on the scene. You've all heard his name, Constantine. He would name his capital Constantinople, and he rules from 306 to 327, 
or sorry, 337. Now, he declares himself to be a Christian. So as we've all heard, this has a radical influence or impact upon the Christian faith. No longer are the Christians a sect. They're central to the civilized world. Basically, the head of the world is a Christian. So this is, this is radical. And he convenes, or at least uh, uh, allows to be convened, uh, the first general council of the church. And you've all heard of the Nicene Creed. This takes place in 325 at Nicaea. And this is where um, the canonization of the Bible is com uh, completed, or at least that process is being brought to a close. And this is where the Nicene Creed is, is formulated. And his mother, who is also uh, who also converts to Christianity, Helena, hears from the um, one of the bishops about basically the history of Christianity. And it dawns on Constantine and his mother that this out-of-the-way, sort of obscure province, which is part of their realm, which they hadn't really paid a whole lot of attention to up till now, Syria, Palestina, actually is the Holy Land. And from here forward, from Constantine forward, this area that's previously known as a province, previous, uh, a province of Rome, previously known as Judea, previously known as uh, Israel, is now now starts to be called the Holy Land. And it's still called that today by many people, Jews and uh, Christians and Muslims alike. So they then move to identify some of the key sites in Palestine and rebuild them. So they build the Church of the Nativity, which is in Bethlehem. They build the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, which is in Jerusalem. And they build uh, a church called Iliona on the Mount of Olives, basically from the other side of the valley overlooking Jerusalem. Now, these three churches are, in a sense, still there today. Now, every one of them has been rebuilt, knocked down, destroyed, and rebuilt. But, but there's, those three churches still exist and still bear those names right up to today. And that dates back to the to the whim and wishes of Constantine and his mother Helena. Now, just out of um, just for interest's sake, I didn't bring a, a map, but if you go to Jerusalem today, strangely, I'm not sure why this is, um, many evangelicals like to go visit the Garden Tomb, and the Garden Tomb is outside of the walls of Jerusalem. And it's also known as Gordon's tomb because it was a, an archaeologist by the name of General Gordon who discovered that area in the 1800s. And there's a, a hill there. There's a bus station at the bottom of it, a cemetery at the top. And it looks like a skull. So he kind of looked at the area and said, you know, this maybe is Christ's tomb. So oftentimes um, Christian pilgrims will go there and they evangelicals, I should say, will go there and they'll say this is the garden tomb. It's absolutely like 110% not the tomb of Christ. Okay. Um, and in fact, if 
if you go there as an evangelical and you claim that it is because it looks the part, you're just, you're, you look like an ignoramus and an idiot because it's not the tomb of Christ. Okay, there's, there's 101 reasons for that. But within the city walls of Jerusalem, there is a church called the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. And that is like 99.9% in all likelihood the, the original Golgotha and Tomb of Christ. But the reason why many people today who don't, don't understand history look at that and say, well, it doesn't play the part is because it's inside the city. And the Bible said it was outside the city. Well, it's because the walls have been expanded. And in the time of Christ, um, from the early church onward, all strands and brands of Christianity, all denominations up till the 1800s have understood that the Church of the Holy Sepulchre is built on the spot of Calvary and the tomb. It's been hacked down. It's been rebuilt, built over and built over and built over. The walls have been expanded around it. So again, it doesn't look like the storybook pictures you have. Gordon's tomb looks like it. But historically, archaeologically, it is, it is the, the place of Christ's death and subsequent burial. Okay, So uh, this is something that I, I kind of want to emphasize because it does concern me at times when Christians... Uh, you know, out of all the, the, the groups of Christians in the world, we consider ourselves biblical Christians, so we should be able to defend basic biblical truths. And when we buy into historical lies, we sort of make ourselves look foolish when we're trying to defend other aspects of our faith, okay? So if you ever go to Jerusalem, it's definitely worth visiting Gordon's tomb because it is an ancient tomb, but it's not the one that Christ was in, and it's not even the, the area that Christ was in. So during this period of time, nevertheless, is when the, the original Church of the Holy Sepulchre is placed on that site. Um, so uh, then because we have basically the legalization of Christianity, what happens during the 4th, 5th, 6th, 7th century is pilgrims begin to stream in to visit these holy sites that they now have access to in Jerusalem. Now, this you have to understand this. This, this is crucial if you're going to understand the Crusades later on. Pilgrims come down from Europe, up from Africa, Christians. Some of them stay, some of them don't. But they're, they're now taking these places that Christ was born in or buried in or visited and elevating the geography of those places to holy status. This wasn't the case in the first century, the second century, the third century. Christians would have had some understanding that these places were significant, but it was under Constantine that the actual locations began to be viewed as holy, and shrines and churches and monasteries and monuments and yada, yada, yada were built on these sites and many of them still remain on these sites. Now, um, as the pilgrims stream in, what happens to the Jewish inhabitants? Well, the Jewish inhabitants now are at a severe disadvantage because they can no longer say, we are the original people living here, 
because there's all kinds of other original people, other Jews, that are Christians. So they no, no, our, our ancestors, they, they would identify with David as well. But they now have on their side oodles and oodles and oodles of people coming in from other places and other provinces and other countries as well. So the Jews become second-class citizens to the Christian pilgrims and the Christian inhabitants of Palestine. Byzantium essentially Christianizes Palestine. And churches begin to be built everywhere. Guess what? They're even built in the Nijev. You can go into the Nijev desert today and look at the ruins of ancient Byzantine churches. And if you remember the video that I played the first class where I talked about the, the place where they would serve water to uh, weary travelers, that was right in the heart of the Nijev desert. So the Nijev is heavily populated to a degree that it has never been populated before or thereafter. The boundaries change and adjoining provinces in the Transjordan, that is to the east of the Jordan River, are now linked up to Syria-Palestinia. Jews are allowed to visit Jerusalem once per year on the 9th of Av to mourn the site of the temple. Otherwise, because of their earlier uprisings, they are not allowed in Jerusalem because the Romans understand that whenever they wind up in Jerusalem, they create revolts. So they let them in once a year and only once a year, and then they have to go back to Galilee or wherever it is they're living. So then by the 5th century, Christians are the majority of the population in Palestinia. And during this time, hermits and monks began to set up monasteries and do missionary work there. So you've heard of like the Desert Fathers, the Desert Mothers. You've heard of the, you know what a monk is, you know what a hermit is. You've probably read or heard the stories of some of the extreme aesthetics who sit on a post all their lives or lock themselves in a cage and their followers feed them with a stick. They would do all these crazy things in order to show their devotion to God. And many of them also function as missionaries. They would go around converting any remaining Jewish inhabitants or foreigners to Christianity. And they're allowed to do that because they are the majority in, uh, in Palestinia. So as the Holy Land, as a region, becomes uh, increasingly ethnically diverse but centered on Christianity, this serves then, of course, to expand Christianity out into the world because within the Holy Land, many different groups of people, many different ethnic groups are coming to faith in Christ. Now, you know, as you can imagine, some of it was probably genuine conversions and some of it was more of like a cultural thing, right? A cultural Christianity just like we have today. But um, just speaking in broad strokes, the the world the the uh, the civilized world is is becoming increasingly Christian. The Jewish authorities essentially remain in the outlying areas, and they uh, do they are able to find some employment. Many of them function as guides to uh, visiting pil Christian pilgrims, and some of them use this as an opportunity to get into Jerusalem more than once a year. 
So they're sort of official guides and they can sort of take people on tours and that gives them an opportunity to visit the sites that are significant to them as well. But during this time, they're essentially focusing in the outlying areas on developing laws and studying the sacred texts, which is sort of a newer development within Judaism when you compare it to the centuries before. In 529, the Samaritans, who are the Samaritans? Okay, Jews and Assyrian, people that the Assyrians placed, mixed together, so they're the, now the, like the northern Jews of sorts. They revolt in 529 AD because Rome is essentially really persecuting the Jews, and the Samaritans would consider themselves Jews in a sense. So after generations of persecution, being viewed as second-class citizen, citizens being charged higher taxes than the Christians, not being allowed to go into Jerusalem, they rebel, rebel or revolt, and um, this revolt continues on for uh, several decades, but it's sort of fought on and off. There's several skirmishes. In 614, the Persians began to grow again, and they're pushing pushing against the Roman Empire. And um, the, the Persians eventually invade Jerusalem in 614. Now, it's very short-lived. They're, they're eventually pushed back out by the Romans. But during that brief period of time when the Persians are ruling in Jerusalem, they allow the, uh, the Jews to come back in. And so they have a little bit of a break there, and they're allowed to worship in Jerusalem again for, for a period of time. Hercules, Heraclius of Constantinople attacks the Persians in Palestine, and he retakes... Jerusalem from the Persians and reestablishes Christian dominance. And this is sort of coming uh, sort of into the beginning, middle of the, um, the 7th century. Now, right around this time, as Rome is concerning itself with the rise of Persia, there's something else taking place. And this is Islam. Islam is birthed in this period of time. So the founding of Islam is as a result of the birth and revelations that a man by the name of Muhammad uh, purports to receive. Muhammad was born in 570 AD. His father died before he was born, and his mother died when he was young, so he was raised by his uncle. He uh, is uh, part of a merchant family, so you could kind of say like middle class. And when he's 25, he marries uh, a woman, a wealthy widow who is 15 years older than him. And the story goes on. He goes into a cave. He receives several visions. First, he thinks they're from the devil. His wife affirms that they're from God. And so the short story is, is that Muhammad unifies the Arab tribes who are mostly polytheists under his new religion, calling them to faith in one God. So then he writes the Quran and he begins to expand now his political and military rule. The Muslim conquests then stem from the 
life and teachings of Muhammad. So the Muslims invade uh, Syria in 629 AD after they already signed a non-aggression pact with the Meccans. Now, I'll skip ahead here and uh, show you a map here in a moment. I think my computer's falling asleep. Of Mecca. So at this point, Muhammad has signed uh, a non-aggression pact with Mecca, but he uh, he's, he's going to break that 10 years later. And they begin to invade Syria. Now, the, the reason, the, the, the political reasons why this happened in the first place relate to the fact that the Romans had previously had a policy of paying the Arab tribes in the south to defend their southern borders. And then they stopped doing it without thinking about the consequences of that. So the the Arabs revolt and now they've converted to Islam. So they have this idea of holy war behind them. They revolt. And this is one of the reasons why they begin to push into Roman-occupied territory. So let me just... Uh, this, uh, well, that's what I wanted to show you on this map, but for some reason, my computer's sleeping here. No, that's not what we want. Let me just show my screen. Show the video. <laughs> what video? <laughs> you guys like that video? You never knew I could dance, did you? Okay. Basically, if you look at the Red Sea, it's on the right-hand side. Okay. Uh, slideshow from the beginning. Okay, now. Okay. It'll come up here in just a second under the slide for the Ottoman Empire. Just as it's... Okay. So this is the Ottoman Empire. We'll look at that later. But Jerusalem, Mecca, Medina. So you have the Red Sea. There's Suez. There's Suez Canal which was cut in the late 1800s through there. It's being expanded since then. Joins the Mediterranean to the Red Sea. So coming down the Red Sea, that's Mecca, that's Medina. Saudi Arabia today, what we call Saudi Arabia. So these are the Arab tribes that are out here in the desert. And they are unified under Muhammad. So then um, in 629, when Rome decides to cancel payment to these Arab tribes that are guarding its southern borders, they rebel and they push up into Syria, in this area. And th these kinds of conquests are started under Muhammad. After Muhammad dies, the... Muslims are ruled by a series of caliphs. Okay? And these men function as spiritual but also military leaders. So in 638, uh, after Muhammad's death, they are successful in taking Jerusalem. 
uh, they tried to they started to attack in in 633. So it took them five years to breach the walls and to get into Jerusalem. Now this is significant because without excusing um, you know the atrocities of the Crusades, I I find it I always find it startling when I hear Christians apologizing to Muslims for the Crusades. Because I think there's been like 10 or 20 different nations that have sacked and taken Jerusalem over the centuries. No one else has apologized to anyone else, including the Muslims themselves who sacked Jerusalem in the 7th century. Like, who are they apologizing to? Uh, It just happened to be that 350 years later, a bunch of Christians took it back from them, and then they took it back from the Christians. So it, from a historical perspective, it's, it's kind of silly when you hear people apologizing uh, for the Crusades. I also find it interesting that you would apologize for the actions of another Christian a thousand years ago. I, I feel no obligation to do that. I don't feel an obligation to apologize to anybody for your actions. Um, I apologize for my own. But nevertheless, this is when the conquest, or that we let's let's use the language crusades uh, of the Muslims took place, where they they took the Holy Land because it was holy, just that the Crusaders tried to take it in 1099 because it was holy. So they're they're able to take Syria with little resistance. The Byzantines flee, and the Muslim commander that is successful in taking Jerusalem is Omar, O-M-A-R. And the sort of anecdotal traditional evidence is, is that he walks into <clears throat> the place of the uh, the temple, which had been in rubble now for several uh, centuries, and with the hem of his garment begins to clear the stones away. I, I don't know if he was really that excited about it or not, but that's the story that Muslims tell. <clears throat> and one thing that is true is he, shortly thereafter at least, he does clear the site and builds the Dome of the Rock, which is the famous mosque that stands on that site today with the big golden, beautiful golden dome that you see in all pictures of postcards of Jerusalem, right? He uses some of the stones from uh Herod's temple, and obviously other um, items as well. Now that that obviously has been renovated and kept up over the years. The dome collapsed during an earthquake at one point, but essentially that's the Mosque of Omar. In uh, well, when they take Jerusalem in 638, it would be within whatever weeks or months after that that the construction begins. <clears throat> now the Muslims then set up. Uh, a military administrative system to rule Palestine. So instead of setting up a, a, a political district system, they set up a military system. So they divide what they call Philistine into districts, and those are ruled by military officers instead of politicians. So this allows them to provide a little more security. I don't know if they had read history or not, but it was actually a smart move. Because previous, a lot of the reasons why Palestine has been lost over the years to other countries or invaders is because once it was captured, it was never militarized. And when it wasn't militarized, and the next group would come in, and, and a, a, 
a political system can't withstand military invaders. But a military administrative system can. And that's one of the reasons why Israel is well defended today, because it's, it's heavily militarized. It's probably the most militarized country in the world. So life returns to normal then for most of the inhabitants because when the Muslims came in, they didn't really have a lot of fighting to do. The Byzantines had sort of been weakened at this point in time. So really the only, uh, I think there was only one major city that the Muslims leveled in their, their conquest of, of Palestine. So very quickly then, life returns to normal for the Jewish and the Christian and now the new Arab inhabitants. Little attention, however, is paid to the Nijev. So unlike under the Byzantines, when the Nijev flourished and there was lots of cities being built, they basically weren't all that interested in the Nijev, so they didn't maintain the roads, they didn't maintain the, the uh, forms of transportation. And so within probably just a couple of lifetimes, essentially the Nijev went back to a sparsely populated area and the cities were abandoned. And... Uh, it wasn't until the time of the Crusades that the key cities of the Nijev were reoccupied, about 350 years later. Interestingly, based upon the, 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 the interest that the Muslims had in um, Palestine, they didn't build that many mosques there. There's still a lot of synagogues in the countryside. They obviously built the Dome of the Rock. Later, they built a second mosque on the Temple Mount. There's mosques being built but really not that many mosques were built under the uh, Muslim rule. Now the Muslims, just like Christians over the years, have, that have feuded and split up and uh, created different denominations, the Muslims have also splintered and split. And the dominant family that sort of takes control of contemporary Islam at the time is known as the Umayyads. This was a dominant family that began to rule the Muslims after a series of internal skirmishes. And the first ruler, his name is Muwaya, that's spelled M-U-A-W-I-Y-A-H. And he is the dominant Muslim leader from 661 to 680. So in Syria, Palestina, he you know, does some good things. He imposes taxes on the people, which are kind of necessary. He conducts a census, but his capital is not Jerusalem. His capital is actually Damascus in Syria. So he spends most of his time in Damascus, and he and his guys will come after him vacation in Galilee, around Tiberias. One of them is, uh, one of uh, his um, successors, story is told, is um, vacationing in Galilee and for some reason his wife's mad at him and she smothers him with a pillow and he dies there. But essentially, Damascus in Syria becomes the place where the palaces are and so Syria is sort of more dominant than Palestinia even though they're, they're one area. Jerusalem gains sacred status because there's a verse in the Quran which claims that Muhammad was transported there. 
in some sort of a vision. So if, I think it's from Mecca or Medina, I'm not sure which, maybe Mecca to, to Jerusalem. As so best as we know, Muhammad never actually stepped foot in Jerusalem, but there was a verse in the Quran that suggests that he was transported there. And so that's why Jerusalem is given holy status by the Muslims. And they claim that it was on the spot where the Dome of the Rock is built. In uh, Quranic theology, there, there are four cities of paradise. There's uh, Mecca, Medina, uh, Jerusalem, and Damascus. So those are the four cities of paradise. And Jerusalem is considered the hub of the world. So I think there might even be some ancient Muslim maps that are sort of circular and right in the dead center is, is Jerusalem. Then in the 700s, uh, a 700s, a second mosque is built on the Temple Mount. I think it's called like Al-Alqa El, El, or Al-Alqaisa. It's it's Al and then a dash and there's four letters and I know the first one's an A. Um, but that's kind of off to the. If you're looking at the Dome of the Rock, if I remember, it's off to the right, kind of down a little bit. Like maybe the distance from here to the houses across the road, or maybe a little less. Um, from the Dome of the Rock. So there's two mosques that are built on the Temple Mount, where the temples originally stood. So the Umayyads then rule Islam, and then we move into the late 700s and early 800s, and a new group rises up called the Abbasids. Now this family descended from Muhammad's uncle Abbas. So Muhammad never had any children that survived, so it's basically, in Islam, there's like fights between who his successor should be. And there's different families that come out of his lieutenants and his kind of key converts that are essentially responsible for the political and religious divide in Islam from there forward. So these guys are descended from his uncle Abbas, and they defeat the... Umayyads in a battle in 750 AD. And this leads to a split in Islam, which you're all familiar with, the Sunnis and the Shias. Or the Sunnis and the Shiites. The Shiites follow the descendants of Muhammad's cousin Ali as a legitimate caliph. So they believe that it's a like a family thing, that the, the, the legitimate ruler of, of Islam is always a descendant of Ali, and the others uh, follow a different non-bloodline as their key ruler. And there's other doctrinal differences that have arisen since then, but initially it was a, more of a division of who's in charge. The Abbasids lean on the Syrians for support and get it, and they continue then to improve the mosques in Palestine, keep them in good repair, they construct a reservoir project in Palestine. And you sort of, sort of run the country, right? I mean, get water to the people, make sure the roads are working, uh, and so forth and so on. So they, they rule then through the 800s. And then a new group arises. These are all Muslim groups called the Fatimids. I wonder what's wrong with this computer tonight. Where's my buddy Otto when I need him, Sarah? No, I'll figure it out. For some reason when I unplug it, it works. So the, the Fatimids, in 969, the 
a, a fellow by the name of uh, Al Muiz. Now this is a strange spelling. Small A L dash capital M U. Upper uh, what's that a apostrophe I Z Z. So he conquers Egypt and he conquers the Holy Land and he is a Shiite. So for the first time, the Shiites, not the Sunnis, have control of Palestine. And this is, imp- this is a significant development as well. Now the Shiites are far more vicious and intolerant of Christians and Jews than their predecessors. So they persecute Christians and persecute Jews. Um, They destroy churches. They tear down synagogues. The Church of the Holy Sepulcher is destroyed. I think this is the era. Don't quote me on this. I I know it happened during one of the Muslim attacks where the the rock upon which um, uh, basically Christ's tomb was, was, was literally hacked down by pickaxes. So if you go into this little shrine within the Church of the Holy Sepulchre today, you're, you're not walking into a tomb, you're walking into a shrine, and there's a shrine, there's a little carved out area that purportedly is Christ's tomb, but it's, it's not a tomb anymore because the Muslims hacked it down with pickaxes. I think this might have taken place under the Fatimids because they were quite aggressive towards Christianity. And um, basically the Church of the Holy Sepulchre then lay, lies in ruins for years until an agreement between the caliph and the Byzantine emperor is met, which allows the Byzantines to come in and sort of rebuild and restore the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. Uh, okay, I actually had a map of the Fatimids, but I deleted it because the resolution was bad. So I'll just bring up this map here. So then... Um, under the Fatimids, there is uh, eventually, you know, time moves on, things change, rulers change out, and there's a general sense of insecurity in the land and a lack of political stability under the Fatimids. They, they don't endear themselves to anybody. They're, they're fighting among themselves. There's all sorts of problems. And uh, the, the Bedouins, who are nomadic groups rally together, and they are able to push back the Fatimids and invade uh, Jerusalem, and in turn, the Fatimids rally. Now again, these are all Muslim groups fighting against each other. The Fatimids rally, and they push the tribes back again into the desert in between 1024 and uh, 1029 AD. So when you're thinking of the periods, the period from like the mid 600s up to the Crusades at the end of the the thousands, the the, the the basically the 11th century, it's all Muslim, but it's different rulers and dynasties being swapped out, kind of fighting with each other for political power. Now the Byzantine rulers during this period of time, so we're now in the in in the thousands. Uh, see the insecurity in Palestine and figure, hey, this is a good time to retake it. You know, it's been 350 years. It's a good time for us to move back in. And another thing that happened during this period of time that 
destabilize the country is a series of earthquakes struck the country. And the Dome of the Rock collapsed. The uh, huge damage, damage was done to the walls around Jerusalem. Some cities literally disappeared. And um, this was catastrophic because nobody has insurance companies. You know, there's no state farm covering this kind of stuff. And there's no, you know, large earth-moving machinery. I mean, you're, you're sort of hand-bombing this rubble out of the way. So you can understand that if there's catastrophic ruin to a city that's taken several hundred years to build, that you don't just rebuild it overnight. So this really puts them back. Um, during this period of time as well, the Muslims experience another attack. The, Muslim invade, the Muslims that are living in Palestine experience attacks from the Turks. Now, the Turks are also Muslims. But the Turks move forward. They attack from the north. They conquer Baghdad, Anatolia, Armenia, Syria, and Jerusalem. What's going on in Europe during this period of time? Well, news is beginning to spread through Europe that their Christian brothers in Palestine are being persecuted. That the Church of the Holy Sepulchre is in ruins. That Muslims are spreading false theology. And there starts to arise a movement, a, a cross-European movement, uh, where people are starting to get angry at what they're hearing about from the Holy Land. Now keep in mind, as I mentioned to you several minutes ago, all the pilgrims that had gone down there several generations before had come back and they'd shared stories about the Holy Land. So there was sort of a, an ethos in Europe of appreciation for Palestine. So they'd heard these stories, generation after generation, I'd grown up hearing these stories about these great churches and you know the, 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 the cross of the true cross of Christ had apparently been discovered by Helena, Constantine's mother, and the Muslims had sort of desecrated that, and different things had happened. So now there's this movement, we, you know, sort of this anger that's brewing, and kind of a we got to do something about this mindset. And the first crusade then takes place, uh, the sort of start of it is generally dated to 1099. Now, it, it, it's there's several years before this where they're sort of preparing for it. You see like the year 1096 up there. And uh, I think I have my little pointer here someplace. What this map shows is uh, France involved, um, Richard the Lionheart, so the British king is involved, Robert of Normandy, whoever this guy is. So there's several, Philip, he's the French guy, Philip Augustus II. So there's several, there's several individuals that respond to the request by the Pope to deal with the issue in um, in the Holy Land. So this is the start of the, what's called the First Crusade. Now, the Pope, conveniently, developed a, a new theological truth. And he said that anybody who 
becomes a pilgrim to Jerusalem is automatically absolved of all sin. So that's pretty good, eh? Eric, you've been to Jerusalem, eh? So you're good to go. I've been there. So, of course, in a, in a day and age when people aren't reading the Bible and whatever the Pope says is true and there's a lot of superstition, I mean, I can be guaranteed heaven. I'm, I'm out of here. See you, Mom. And all these people flock to the Middle East. Now, before 1099, in fact, there was what was called a, the Peasants' Crusade. The Pope hoped that the noblemen, so Europe was ru- ruled by noble families, which later turned into monarchs. He hoped that the noblemen and the knights would actually go and do the job, but they weren't as fast out of the blocks as the peasants. Probably wanted more absolution from sin, I guess. So the, the peasants actually were the first group to head toward the Promised Land, but they basically got butchered and cut down and died on the way. So they weren't really successful. And then uh, with with uh, Pope Urban II, uh, with his political maneuverings, he was able to convince the, Europe's nobility to go and free the Christians from persecution in Palestine. And he framed it as a holy war. Uh, there's a Latin word for that. I can't remember what it is, but it's sort of the, the equivalent of jihad. So then um, the the forces begin to march down in in around 1099. Some of them take the overseas route, and um, the Germans, the German emperor uh, Frederick, right here. Okay, he dies on the way, and his his army is being attacked at the time by the Turks en route. So he's in Asia Minor. He never actually makes it. His army scatters. Some people desert. Some people drown. Uh, I think what happens to him is he's trying to cross a river on a horse with full armor on, and he falls off, and he can't float. So he drowns. Um, His army gets his body and decides to put it in a big barrel with vinegar in it to try to preserve it so he can be taken and buried in Jerusalem. But their mortuary skills aren't that great. And so by the time they get there, things are looking kind of hideous in the barrel. So his flesh is buried here, his bones are buried in another part of Israel, and his, uh, his organs are buried in another part of Israel. And, you know, pity the poor guy that had to carry the baskets of whatever. But that's sort of what happens to him. Um, another interesting story is when the peasants, three or four years earlier, came down the Rhine River, they anti-Semitism was alive and well in Europe. So along the Rhine River, they started killing Jews. And the as they traveled south the Christian inhabitants of Europe who were friends of those Jews killed them for killing the Jews. So the the peasants' crusade actually ended at the hands of Christians killing Christians because the Christian crusaders had killed the Jews on the way. So so the the first people to really uh, arrive then are um, uh, the the, uh, the French, and under Philip II and Richard the Lionheart, because notice the route they take. 
over water. So it's, you know, the, the, you're more apt to drown, but you're not going to get attacked. So they're, they're successful in bringing their armies in. And um, the Crusaders are actually able to take Jerusalem in less than a month, which is incredible compared to what previous armies had, had had to do. But they do basically butcher all the all of the Muslims and uh, Jews living in Jerusalem. So it's, it is a massacre. Um, in, on July the 17th, 1099, Godfrey of Bouillon, he refuses to take the title of king of Jerusalem at the time because it's the holy city and he doesn't want to kind of take on any sort of divine status. But he is declared the defender of the holy sepulcher. That's the title on his business card, I guess. And he takes control, and various principalities are established to the Holy Land, and the Jerusalem becomes the kingdom of Jerusalem. So this area from Beirut down to Elat becomes the kingdom of Jerusalem, and his successor is actually called the king of Jerusalem. Um, by the way, when the, when the crusaders came in, they basically marched in a straight line right through and took Jerusalem like that. So after they took Jerusalem, then they had to go back out and reestablish infrastructure. When the Romans would come in, they would establish infrastructure as they go and take a lot longer and then attack Jerusalem. They just went kind of in a straight line, attacked Jerusalem. So then it took them several years to be able to build up an administrative system in Palestine to be able to govern it. So then... Um, there's not a lot of stability at first, but once word reaches Europe, Christians begin to pour into Palestine and settle there. And that ups the population of the Christians. And the next ruler, a man by the name of Baldwin I, is able to extend and secure the new kingdom of Jerusalem. Now, the Muslims don't put up that much of a resistance. Uh, there's a lot of feuding going on among them at the time under the First Crusade. So I'm not going to suggest they're passive, but they're not really like unified and pushing back. But a little bit of time goes by and they suddenly realize that not only is there this political threat, but there's a threat to their faith. So by 1124, some 25 years later, they're now fighting back and they're starting to beat the crusaders again at various battles. And so a new crusade was needed to uh, re-secure the Holy Land again. And so this becomes known as the Second Crusade. And the Second Crusade is dated to approximately 1148. And the Crusaders first come down and they try to take Damascus, but they fail. So that's a bit of a bummer. The Muslims continue to feud among themselves during this period of history. The Crusaders capitalize this, and initially they, they defeat the um, Islamic military ruler, you've all heard of him, Saladin in several battles around 1177. But then the Crusaders start to fight among themselves. And so 10 years later, Saladin beats them and retakes Jerusalem in 1187. So now it's back under Muslim control. Okay, so let's take a break at this time and then we'll talk about the third crusade and ultimately the, the end of the, the, the period known as the Crusades. So we'll take just a few minutes, there's some snacks in the back, and then I'll call you back.
So we're talking about the Crusades. First Crusade, Peasant's Crusade, 1096. The European noblemen come down in 1099, take Jerusalem. And then um, there's a period of decline. So there's the second, the second Crusade. First they beat Saladin, then he beats them. Then there's a third crusade, and this is 1191. So this is almost 100 years after the first crusade. And the fact that the crusaders had been, uh, been defeated sends a shockwave through Europe. Now keep in mind, the communication systems aren't what they are like today. So, you know, a shockwave for us, you know, you hear it on the... It happens 9 o'clock this morning. It's on CNN at 11, right? This would be like years. So the shockwave goes through Europe. This was the Holy Land after all. The new pope, the pope at the time, organizes a new army. And this is where... um, So it's under the Third Crusade then, so the 1100s, that Frederick Barbosa of Germany, Richard the Lionheart of England, and Philip Augustus of France are sent out. Uh, As I mentioned, the Germans disintegrate in Asia Minor. The other two reach uh, the land by ship in 1191. And basically to summarize this crusade, the, the Christians and the Muslims alike show a general lack of unity and enthusiasm. And they win, they lose, they win, they lose, they win this battle, lose this one. And there's no real decisive victory like there was in the first crusade. So the powers of the Christians and the Muslims in the Holy Land then are beginning to ebb and flow through the 1200s as battles wage all over Palestine. And this continues to the end of the 13th century. Now because the, the, uh, these two groups couldn't sort of get it together, we now move into another uh, major phase in Israel's history, and that is the Ottoman Empire. The Ottoman Empire, there's a map here I have for you, Um, again, small writing, but this is in 1300, the brown areas, there it is, very small, these are acquisitions between 1300 and 1359, so there's orange, 1359 and 1451, I guess it's kind of a tan color. Notice they're expanding. And then uh, 1451 to 1481, you see the purple. They're expanding more. 1512 to 1520, you have the green. Look how much area they take now. Like It's really expanding out. Uh, Darker green, so you have this area here that's taken over, this area here. And up to 1683, this orange line... There's a map on the back of your handouts, just in black and white. But this orange line shows at its height how much area the Ottoman Empire had taken. So it's pretty substantial. They have portion. There's Vienna. So they're way up into Europe. Uh, yeah, into Austria. They have um, basically the whole of the Fertile Crescent. They have Mecca, Medina... Egypt, most of northern Africa, over as far as Algeria, not quite as far as Morocco. They're not into Spain or Rome, but they're they're quite powerful. And the Ottoman Empire, 
is um, preceded by a group called the, the, the Mamelukes. So as the, the group in uh, Palestine, Christian and Muslim alike, sort of aren't getting along and basically growing weaker and weaker, the, um, this new group called the Mamelukes rises up. Now, that, I find this is probably one of the most fascinating people groups and fascinating... Um, th this particular culture is some of the most fascinating elements to it that I've ever heard, and here's why. Mameluk actually refers to uh, a slave, like an indentured slave. So what would happen is that the Islamic armies wanted to build their military forces. So they would buy or acquire boatloads of uh, slaves. And they would pretty much always get them as boys. So uh, up into the north and among the Turks, the Turks would... Uh, I'm not sure if they would ship them or they'd go up there and capture them. I'm not exactly sure how it worked out. But basically the Turks and group of Caucasians from uh, Europe would be taken and integrated into the Islamic army as boys. And they became known as the, the Mamelukes. Now, at one point in uh, 1250 AD down in Egypt, where the where Islam was dominant, the entire army was Mameluk. And in particular, they were actually Turkish Mameluks. They weren't the Caucasian Mameluks in this instance. They were Turkish Mameluks. And they would become officers in the army. Generations would go by. They would take on greater and greater wealth, get, on, get more and more power. And the Mameluk army, which was a, 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 an enslaved people, seize power from the uh, Ayyubids in Egypt and began to rule Egypt in 1250. But this is, this is where I find it really interesting. Over the next several years, from 1250 to 1390, there's 25 sultans, Mameluk sultans, that rule the Mameluk kingdom. And they will hear this momentarily, but they, they will eventually spread up and, and take Palestine. So these sultans, under them, had a series of emirs and different... They had a, a, a system that sort of worked for them. But um, you had to be a slave, a former slave, to be the sultan. They actually valued their slave past so much that a Mameluk sultan, let's say he has a son that's born as a free man, the son can never be the sultan because he wasn't born a slave. So 25, 25 men are the sultans, and they're always from the army. They're always slaves from the army. And the idea was is that if they could show loyalty as slaves to the sultan, then they were loyal to the whole cause in the kingdom, and therefore they could be the sultan. So no free men were ever allowed to be the sultan of the Mamelukes. They were all slaves, and they found slavery strangely honorable, which I don't think I've ever heard in any other culture. But they found it honorable, and their whole political and military system was based upon 
the nobility of slavery. And so if you were a free man, you were a second-class citizen because you didn't have the opportunity to show loyalty to someone that, to whom you were indentured. So the Mamelukes then, uh, obviously coming out of military backgrounds, head north. Now at this point, Mongols from Mongolia are, are trying to press down into the Fertile Crescent and for a period of time make it into Palestine. The Mamelukes push them back in Syria and the Mamluk Sultan Kutez, his name is spelled Q-U-T-U-Z, takes Syria and then Palestine. Now he is eventually assassinated by his one of his generals, Baybar, and Baybar becomes the next sultan, and he's the guy that kind of develops Palestine. He rebuilds the roads, roads and he develops one of the first postal systems uh, using um, men and horses, like horseback riders. So you could get, um, they say at one point, a letter from uh, southern Palestine to the north in a day, which is pretty impressive for, for that era based upon his postal system. So this allows him to speed up communication. The Persians, who had reared their ugly heads earlier, eventually begins to threaten Mameluk power in the regional north. And Christians now, who are still living in Jerusalem, are sort of, they're actually, they actually prefer the Mamelukes to the Fatimids who had come before because the Mamelukes give them a little more freedom. Again, they're Muslims, but they give them a little more freedom than the oppressive Shiite uh, Fatimids. Uh, so the Christians, you know, it's not a great life in Palestine, but it's better than it had been for some time. However, for the Jews, it 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 wasn't so great. The Jewish population uh, of Jerusalem was was really small. In fact, in 1267, there's a story told that there was an attempt in Jerusalem to um, gain, gain a quorum in order to host prayers on the Sabbath. And according to Judaism, you have to have 10 Jewish men to form a quorum to host prayers on the Sabbath. They couldn't find 10 Jewish men in all of Jerusalem. So for all intents and purposes, there's virtually no, there's like a, literally a handful, or maybe a handful and a half, but not two handfuls, of Jews living in, in Jerusalem. Now, uh, as time goes by, coming into the 15th century, immigration into the Mamelukes is, is allowed a little bit more, and so that, that um, number increases substantially into the 15th century. But uh, even under the Mamelukes, the Jews are heavily taxed and persecuted. Their tax rates are higher than the Christians, definitely higher than the Muslims. They're just not trusted. The Black Plague, or the Black Death of Europe, sweeps through Europe in the 14th century and makes its way down into Palestine in 1348 and 1349 and wipes out a great number of the population. During this time, under the Sultans, commerce was also floundering locally, so they had to branch out more and rely more on foreign, foreign commerce in order to sustain the economy. But things weren't great. So in the 1400s then, the Mamelukes begin to fight among themselves, which always seems to happen whenever anybody's at peace. And this allows the Bedouin tribes 
to basically wage guerrilla warfare, and they start to destabilize the, the country militarily and in terms of security. People couldn't even travel on the roads because the Bedouins were attacking them, and people just didn't want to live there. So um, the, the Bedouins even... And the Bedouins, by the way, had already been converted to Islam. But the Bedouins were even known to attack Islamic caravans traveling from the north down through this corridor to Mecca for the annual Hajj, the journey to Mecca that happens every year. So this became a key corridor for Muslims up here to travel down here, and the, the Bedouins are even killing off uh, running off, stripping naked and leaving to die in the wilderness, Muslim travelers. So this destabilizes the region under the Mamelukes. Well, the Ottoman Empire, as you can see, is growing and growing. We have our dates here. So we're now into 453. So into this uh, area of purple, they're starting to push down. And in 453, uh, can we see Constantinople on this map? Uh, anybody see it? Okay, maybe it's not on there. So the the uh, Ottomans conquer Constantinople. So Constantinople is basically the capital of the Roman Empire at the time, named after Constantine. They capture it. This is huge. And... They grow in power, and the residents of Palestine begin to encourage the Ottomans to come in and attack Palestine because they want the Mamelukes out, and they'd rather be under Ottoman rule. So the Ottomans basically take them up on their offer, and I'm sure there's more reasons for it than that. The Ottomans defeat the Mamelukes in 516, so we're in this period here those acquisitions all down through here. They defeated the Mamluks and the Egyptians at the same time near Aleppo in Syria. And the Ottomans then take control of Palestine from 1516 to 1917 for 400 years. Is there, Palestine now is under the rule of the Muslim Ottoman Empire. The Ottoman Empire crumbles at the end of World War One, and the country of Turkey is formed. So, let's talk about the Ottoman Empire then. So the Ottomans are Islamic by faith and Turkish by ethnicity. And they have as their goal, as they begin to expand out, they also have as their goal jihad, holy war, that they were taking lands for God. By 1683, they'd pushed their way up to Vienna. But you'll notice that this area here is sort of the stop mark. They actually don't quite get to Vienna. And they really don't settle that far north. They're actually pushed back down um, into, uh, like, out of Europe and basically are content to stay in the southern area, uh, the, which would be northern Asia, but south of Europe. Um, and as I mentioned, they will they, they then will rule uh, 
Palestine, not as a country. Again, it's not a country. It's just a district, a province of their kingdom until the British take it over under the British mandate in, um, uh, you know, about 100 years ago. So uh, initially, when they take over Palestine, they merge Palestine and Syria. So Syria, Palestine, they just, they just bring it together into one. It's, I guess, probably just for administrative purposes. But then they divide Palestine into five districts, and they have their own governmental system, their own sort of provinces within the former Roman province to administrate the affairs of the kingdom. Now, they they have a responsibility, they believe, as an the emperor has a responsibility to uh, maintain access to Mecca. So um, probably the most important, if not one of the most important reasons why the Ottomans wanted this is this strip of land is more or less a highway down to Mecca so they could worship there. And in addition to that, on the way, they would recognize the holiness of Jerusalem. Um, militarily, Palestine also functions as a corridor between Asia and Africa, and in particular Egypt. So if, they're, if this is their territory and this is their territory, this is the sliver of land that joins them. They can always cross the Mediterranean, but that's the sliver of land. So this is important for them to keep open and accessible for religious reasons, reasons for northern Muslims to visit Mecca and for political reasons, so that the top part of their empire is joined with the bottom part of their empire. The problem with the Bedouins did not go away, and so the Ottomans decided to give positions of power within their empire to some Bedouin rulers. So there was a governor of Tiberias, for instance, on this western side of the Sea of Galilee, who was Bedouin. And they would basically take the Bedouins, they would integrate them into their government structure, and it didn't solve the problem immediately, but that allowed them to govern Palestine more efficiently than previous rulers who had pitted themselves against the Bedouin uh, population. During this period of time, uh, the, the number of, so this is by the 16th century, uh, historians estimate there were probably only about 300,000 people living in what we call Palestine. So basically, you know, it's a little bit bigger than the city of Windsor living in the country. And of these people, 90% of them were Muslim. So unlike under the Christian emperor, where the majority were Christian, it had flipped. Now you get about 10% Christian and Jewish and 90% Muslim living in Palestine. Some cities were divided up, even quartered, in order to accommodate different religious groups. So you, you are aware that the old city of Jerusalem is quartered. You got the Muslim quarter, the Jewish quarter, the Orthodox, the Armenian quarter, and so forth. And this pattern was practiced by the Ottomans at some key places in Israel where there were various religious or ethnic groups, and they sort of divided them up to accommodate them. There were about uh, 13,000 uh, Jews and Christians living in Palestine, but they were not united. 
among the Christians, there were now seven different, we'll call them denominations. There were the Nestorians, there were the Orthodox, there were the Roman Catholics. There were several different sects among the Christians that were living there, so there, there was no real uh, you know, homogeny among the, the, um, the, the Christians and the Jews, of course, they were religiously more unified, but they were sort of geographically scattered around as well. So they were just sort of living there. The population continues to shrink. And um, fast forwarding ahead to the 1800s, uh, the beginning of the 1800s, in Jerusalem now, there's probably about 2,000 Jews living, whereas by the end of the 1800s, there's 28,000 Jews living in Jerusalem. So something significant happens in the 1800s. And this aligns with the weakening of the Ottoman Empire. So the Ottoman Empire coming into the 1800s is starting to wobble a little bit. And it wobbles back and forth for about a century until it collapses at the beginning of the 20th century, the 1900s. And what was happening during this period of time is that um, the Ottoman Empire formed various alliance, trade and economic relationships with European countries. And as countries began to warm up to each other, they would send emissaries or uh, people would form consulates in Palestine, for instance. So in Palestine, even coming into the 1800s, Britain, the British had a presence there. The French had a presence there. Um, and the, uh, the Jews and Christians, then, of course, would increasingly benefit from the presence of the Europeans who lived there as in, in the foreign consulates. So Europe then begins to increase in its power. I mean, it's not, I shouldn't say begin. It, it, it has increased substantially in its power during the past couple of uh, decades or, or centuries. And the Ottoman Empire begins to wane. In its internal strife, it goes to war against Russia. And Russia basically obliterates its fleet on the water in 1770. It, it's then attacked by Jaffa in 1775. So this is a few years, obviously, before coming into the 1800s. But the point is, this, these are some of the influences that weaken them. Napoleon had invaded Palestine in 1799 and took several coastal cities because he didn't want, he wanted to block British control of the Mediterranean and in particular British trade with Palestine. But um, he was surprised to find out the locals didn't like him. I mean, nobody likes Napoleon. I don't think his own people liked him. But uh, So that doesn't last very, very long. But all of this does serve to, to weaken the Ottoman Empire. So by the 19th century then, it's basically at its lowest point. I mean, the French can just come in and take land under Napoleon. The British more or less control the Mediterranean. You know, um, they're weak. And uh, they don't really fight back, so it's not like some big war sort of blows up and the Ottoman Empire goes to war against against uh, Europe. They more or less fizzle out. 
Now, there is a period of time in the 1800s, the mid-1800s, where Muhammad Ali, who is an Egyptian ruler, is able to take control of Palestine and Syria until about 1841, but he then is forced by the Europe, uh, a, a naval blockade from the Austrians and the English to give it back to the Ottoman Empire because the Europeans are kind of allies with the Ottomans and they don't want their trade relationships messed with, so they don't really like the fact that this Egyptian guy just comes up and takes land. Um, kind of like today, you know, a lot of people question why does the West care about what goes on in the Middle East? Well, because we don't want to messing with our economy, right, our trade. So we put boots on the ground when, when necessary. So it was the same kind of experience going on there. Um, so the Ottoman Empire sort of reaches its lowest point. And from this point, basically the Ottoman Empire comes right up to the doorstep of its, its death. And uh, it wouldn't be very long after this that uh, it actually has to rely upon European powers to defend its empire. Well, if you've got to rely upon someone else to defend your empire, you basically don't have an empire anymore. So this sort of brings us up to the end of the, the 1800s. And then next week what we'll do is we'll talk about how the British actually took over Palestine and then the key events leading up to 1948 and thereafter. Okay. So any, any questions then about the, this very lengthy period of time that we've covered tonight? Or any comments you might want to share? No, that would just be like a rabbinic tradition or something within Judaism. I'm not sure where where it would come from specifically, but it wouldn't be like a biblical commandment. Yeah. During the during the like basically from the second century onward, the Jews are studying scripture, but they're also adding law, 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 scribal schools, rabbinical schools. Um, during that period of time, they add vowel points to the whole Hebrew Bible. It's 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 a period of scholasticism, and, and out of that come all sorts of laws that are part of various strands and brands of Judaism today that aren't biblical per se. Yeah, Don. Now, how old was Muhammad when he died? You could look it up. I think he was 56 or somewhere. Uh, she might have died just before. Someone could Google it. I, I've studied this in the past. I don't know it off the top of my head. Yeah, well, later he takes uh, he takes various uh, women into his quote-unquote harem, including a nine-year-old, which he apparently didn't have sex with till he was she was 11. I think he was 53 or 54 at the time, which I can't imagine makes it any more excusable. Um I actually debated a Muslim on that once, and he said that he went and talked to his um, imam and came back and said, well, the reason for that is women grew up quicker back then. Really. Okay. Because anthropologists tell us they're growing up quicker today because of health, advances in health. But, you know, nevertheless, they're a lot up to four wives, right? So... According to Quranic theology, not not all Muslim countries practice that. But. Any other questions? Yeah.
Sorry? Lamech. Oh, sorry. Yeah, Islam is the name of their religion, and a Muslim is a follower of Islam. Any other questions? You'll see in the old, uh, you, you'll see a lot of different spellings of Muslim. So in the old books, they'll say Moslem, M-O-S. And then there's more than modern spelling is M-U. It's, it's, always, it's always an attempt to, like English, for instance, is the language we're speaking. So it's always an, it's always an, an attempt to take the Arabic and render it properly into the receptor language, which in this case is English. So, um, you know, as advances are, linguistical advances are made between understanding good translation philosophy between one language and another, at some point someone discovered that Muslim is not the best way of spelling it in English. They change it to Muslim. But it's not like the Muslims change the spelling. It's just in English you just kind of update things at times. Well, it's not the same God. The only um, the reason why it's not the same God is it's not a, per, a a God who's intrinsically personal. And I know there's a lot of Christians that say, uh, you know, Allah and God are the same. But because our God is triune, they are in fact not the same. They are not triune. Their God is not triune. He's a static one. And he's not a God. He's not a God. Allah, yeah, A L L A H. So where where um, Jews and Christians and Muslims, which are all called the Abrahamic faiths, align is they are monotheists. We all worship one God. And, I mean, there's some other things in addition to that. We all recognize um, the, the authority of uh, the Torah, so the Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And we all recognize, well, Christians and Muslims recognize the authority of the Injil, which we would understand to be the gospel. But here's the catch. In theory, Muslims say the Torah and Injil are authoritative, but in practice they aren't because they claim that we've changed them. Right? Now, in the Quran, it says that a Muslim is supposed to follow the teachings of Moses and the teachings of Jesus. But... Muhammad probably said that because he had some familiarity with Christians and Jews, but really maybe didn't have the kind of access to their literature that he should have to make that claim. So then later Muslims are confronted with the problem. Well, our prophet says we need to follow the teachings of Moses and Jesus, but now we're reading them. They're clearly not the same as ours. So then the line is, well, sometime after Muhammad, they changed. We changed them. And the best argument to that is... Hello, we have umpteen dozen manuscripts that predate Muhammad in our physical possession. <laughs> and they're the same as the ones we have today. So it, it, they're, it, in terms of uh, comparative religion, they're on weak footing there. But uh, it is critical for us to understand that Allah and Yahweh are not the same. Fundamentally, because uh, Yahweh God is triune and Allah is not. And therefore... If 
a law does not have within his constitution relationality as Yahweh God does as a triune God. If it's not in his constitution, then it's not in his ability to have relationship. Whereas the Christian God is in his constitution, we'll say in his makeup, relational in and of himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit existing forever prior to the creation of any of us, conducting relationship within himself, so therefore it's not difficult for him to have relationship with us. But the big question, this is more of a philosophical question, but the big philosophical question that Muslims have to answer is how can your God have a relationship with you if his constitution doesn't allow it? So that's that's a huge difference. And then of course, you know, our answers to the question of how one attains eternal life are drastically different. Islam lines up with everybody else. It's what you do. Christianity stands alone in that it, biblical Christianity, uh, I'll have to stress that, biblical Christianity stands alone in that it's by God's grace through faith in Christ. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know. There, there. Of course, there's a whole satanic verses thing that's hotly debated. Um, there's a portion of the the Quran that some believe refer to written by Muhammad that some believe one could say give a tip of the hat to worshiping two other deities, which, uh, you know, Salman Rushdie wrote his novel on that, and then, um, but in English translations, it's it's kind of disappears, and in the Arabic it's explained away. But historically that's been a, uh, a, a point that non-Muslim apologists have tried to poke at Islam to say, you know, there's an inconsistency here because you're saying you're, you're monotheist, but in the oldest versions of your Quran there seems to be an indication of two other gods that are mentioned. So I'm not a scholar on that, but I know Andy Bannister, who spoke here a year ago, has done some, well, he has his PhD in Islamic studies, so he's researched that aspect a little more than me. Yep, Kathy? Pardon me? Okay. Mm. Yeah, I could believe that. Um, it's, a, it's a generic, it's like, it is the equivalent of God to us. Well, God isn't a biblical word. Yahweh is, Jesus is. These are biblical words. Um, but it's like the the equivalent of supreme deity. So in certain languages, it's Elohim. In certain languages, Allah. In certain languages, God. Um, but this this is our language trying to express the concept of a God. So... It may very well be true that if you were like a Coptic Christian, you may refer to God as Allah, but in your head, you're, it's a different notion of what 
you have a different notion of who Allah is than the Muslim who uses that same word. Right. Anyone else? Okay. Yeah. Well, I think there's several reasons. I mean, we look at history, there's always ebbs and flows, right? There's empires come, empires go, religions rise, religions fall. There's probably several reasons. Um, one of them would be the perception among various uh, Muslims that their, their culture and their faith is being challenged by Western values. So their perception of the West is different than our perception of the West on two levels at least. The one is that they would view, a, many Muslims in many second and third world countries would view all Westerners as Christian. And we're living over here thinking, really? Like, we know that's not true. We bemoan that fact, but they would see it that way because in their culture to be whatever, Saudi Arabian is to be Muslim, to be Moroccan is to be Muslim, to be a Berber is to be Muslim, right? So in a sense, to be an American or to be a Canadian is to be Christian. And because the West is, the Western nations are the most powerful nations on earth right now, for the most part. Um, I mean, there's obviously the rise of China, but historically, in the last several decades, they feel there's an affront to their faith because of the rise of Christianity, which we don't think of as Christianity, we think of it as the West, but they see it as Christianity. And I know that for a fact, because I've been to Muslim countries and they talk that way. Why does Vanilla Ice act that way when he's a Christian? He's not a Christian. Yes, he is. No, he's not. You know, okay. So that's a conversation I had with a guy 20 years ago in Morocco. Um, and then um, the, the, the notion of the West, notably uh, America interfering politically, extending its colonialism, right? So a lot of these people are in countries that were colonialized. When Turkey was formed in the early 1900s, so were most of the Arab states. And prior to that, they were under various European powers. So they're now reacting to the potential of colonialization again from America or England. Um, another factor is birth rates. There's, they are growing at a, a faster rate than most Western countries. And so their sons and daughters now living abroad, and there's more of a global mindset, and you know they see light at the end of the tunnel. Maybe this is an opportunity to extend our religion globally, and then and then you just have you know run-of-the-mill idiots that that just are troublemakers that, when given the opportunity in certain cultures and climates and contexts, are going to you know take things to the nth degree. So there's there's several reasons. It's it's not true that Islam is the fastest growing religion in the world. It's just not true. Christianity still is. But Islam tends to be slightly more unified at present than, it's not unified, but it tends to be slightly more unified than Christianity as a whole. Um, and the other thing that we need to take into consideration when Muslims brag about converts is it's primarily converts by uh, birth, right? Whereas biblical Christianity in particular stresses that you're not a Christian by birth. So we stress a personal conversion, a personal decision, a personal commitment, whereas you know, you're born a Muslim, you die a Muslim. That's just the way it is. So there's several things in the system that differ from our system. And you can't leave 
Yeah, I mean, there's especially in those closed countries, uh, because it's so much tied to your ethnicity, uh, there's, you know, potential of death if you leave your faith. So there's a lot of things hindering that. There's fear among Christians to go there and evangelize. Um, you know, there's energy issues. There's the wealth of Saudi Arabia. Um, you know, we have Muslim women in Windsor that 10 years ago weren't wearing the hijab. Well, if Saudi Arabia offers you 400 bucks a month, my daughters would be wearing the hijab. So, you know, Susie, Kasia, Abby, that's 1200 bucks. $14,400 a year. I'm in. So, so they, they are, they're paying women to wear it and uh, in the West, and that's why it's more noticeable. They are paying women here to wear it. Yes, they are. Yeah. Um, it's good advertising. One of the young girls in our, I had heard this. I asked a Muslim, but he tried to deny it. But there's a Muslim girl that's attended our church with her hijab. She's a friend of a girl here, and she says, yeah, we, we get paid for it. She's admitted that. She's a Muslim. She's come here a couple times with it on, yeah. yeah. Well, the, 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 the mosque would, I'm assuming the mosque, it's all very secretive. But I'm, I, it would come somehow through the mosque. I mean, I doubt it's taxed, um, which is a whole other interesting thing. But yeah, there's there's uh, the, the the women in Windsor who are wearing the hijab. We we've been told from Muslim women are paid to wear it, and that's why you know Muslim women that weren't wearing it ten years ago. Like I used to live in on Foster Ave, a lady crossed the street and never wore it. We moved to Mark Ave, she moved two streets over, she now wears it. It's like your baby bonus. Anyway, have a good week.